Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, from finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each podcast will consist of interviews with two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work. Hello and welcome back to our third episode of the Let's Get to Work podcast. My name is Brooke Jostad, the community chair, and I am here today interviewing Dan Spoon, president of the American Council of the Blind. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dan. Oh, thank you, Brooke. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to have you. You know, I got a sneak peek. I got to read Dan's bio before he came on to our show. And you guys are in for a treat. He's done some really cool things that I didn't even know he had done. So <laughs> let's dive right into it. Dan, can you tell us your story, kind of starting off with your early years and your your high school, middle school experience? What was it like um, What being a blind student? And where did you, how did you grow up? Sure. Uh, well, I I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and attended public uh, school here. I have an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosis, RP. So it's one of those things that degeneratively, you know, it degenerates as you get older. So I, um, you know, kind of, um, I guess you would say when you have RP, you're kind of always transitioning with the next uh, version of vision loss. And so... Uh, you know, really was able, you know, uh, to go through elementary school, I would say, uh, under normal circumstances, except for the fact that I, you know, always had to kind of sit on the front row so I could see the blackboard and be close enough to see that. And, you know, my my nose was always really close to my books and, and that type of thing. And then um, I started to, uh, as I got into uh, what I, we, we went to junior high school and then high school. I'm, you know, I was, uh, went to school in the, in the sixties and seventies. And so, uh, you know, as I got a little bit older, my lights, my eyes got more and more sensitive to light. So I had to wear, uh, my friends used to joke multiple pairs of sunglasses to be able to see, depending on the brightness of the light. Uh, and then, um, you know, finally got to, you know, so kind of went through mainstream uh, uh, high school for the most part and uh, really got introduced to our Florida Division of Blind Services when I was a junior and senior in high school. And uh, then I went on to uh, college at the University of Florida. And at that point in time, you know, my vision continued to get worse. It got hard uh, to be able to see the, you know, see the blackboard from, uh, from even the, the front row by my junior and senior year of, of college, started using magnifying glasses and then getting uh, readers to help read my textbooks, uh, you know, letting my professors know that I needed, you know, some, uh, some extra time. It was before the days of accessible accessibility centers and those type of things. And so, um, you know, it was a little bit of a, you know, just kind of journey along the way. And then uh, finally, I went to the University of Florida, graduated with an undergraduate degree in finance. And 
at the same time, I was working at Walt Disney World as a character in the summers and holidays and those type of things. So that was a really good part-time summer job living in Orlando. And that had its own challenges, too, of being able to uh, you know, navigate with with low vision and with light sensitivity, you know, inside the costumes, uh, you know, doing the different characters at Disney and the parades and things. I couldn't couldn't drive any of the floats or any of that stuff. I never was able to to drive with my vision. And so, um, you know, just kind of um, went through that particular um, phase and, and graduated with an MBA at Florida and you know, really felt, you know, pretty compelled that I was going to get a really good job, but it, but it didn't happen that way. So, um, I don't know, it was kind of, um, uh, it, it was good. And I've, I've only had, I've only had five jobs in my life. So it's kind of interesting, not counting being president of American Council of the Blind. So, uh, once I had a job, I kind of stuck at it for a little while, but, uh, thank you for uh, sharing all yeah, that. Yeah. We can kind of talk a little more there, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things, you know, I have a lot of things that came from that, but one question before mm-hmm. we move on to postgraduate was yeah. um, just out of curiosity, what was it like being a Disney character? The very unique well, summer it, job. <laughs> it really was. It was a lot of fun. I st- really stayed in great shape. You know, those costumes, you know, I was the, the taller. So I, I did like Br'er Bear and Baloo and Goofy and Tigger and those kind of characters and especially the bears you know there there are costumes weighed at least 50 pounds you had these big fiberglass heads that sat on top of your shoulder and big huge thick padded suits and big big bare feet uh, and so they they I was really in great shape because you know as you can imagine in Orlando Florida in the summertime it was like 95 degrees with 100 mm-hmm. percent humidity and you're you're in those costumes so from that standpoint, you know, dancing and going around, it, it, for, it really kept me in good shape, but it was fun. I mean, the um, one of my favorite stories is we were doing a forecourt in front of Cinderella's castle, and I was in Br'er Bear, and they, they asked me to go back behind the, you know, fits for a VIP guest. And, you know, I was in my early 20s. I was really into, you know, local music in the Florida area. And I go behind the fence and there is Jimmy Buffett and his wife and his three-year-old daughter, Savannah. So Jimmy Buffett comes up to me and says, Br'er Bear, could we have your autograph? And I'm like, this is, (laughs) this has got to be, you know, I'm going to Jimmy Buffett concerts. And now I'm asking, Jimmy Buffett is asking me for, you know, to give Br'er Bear his autograph for his daughter. So that was... (laughs) That was kind of a very pretty funny moment, uh, but it was a lot of, it, it was really a, you know, it was a good job. It was hard to get out there because Disney is like out in the middle of nowhere, like 20, 20 miles away from Orlando. And of course, not being able to drive and there really wasn't good mass transit to get out there. So you were always working with friends and all that to get rides. Sometimes I'd have to spend the night hiding around, you know, underneath the tunnels at Disney because I didn't have any way to get home and I needed to do the next shift the next morning. So you know how that goes, Brooke, you're all, whatever it takes to get the job done, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like yeah. you had to be pretty creative. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that after you got your master's in mm-hmm. your MBA, that it wasn't exactly what you had hoped. Tell us more about that process and what you did. Sure. So I really, you know, I felt pretty, one thing I think as a blind person, 
we get really good at going to school. So we, 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 we do, you know, at least if you work hard at it, you can do really well in school. So, you know, I had a good grade point average, you know, I did well in my classes. And so when it came time for the interviews, back at that point in time, they had, I had gotten my, my master's and my MBA concentrating in accounting. Well, at that point in time, they had no accessible, uh, you couldn't sit for the CPA exam. They offered it no large print, no extra time, no, no accommodations for people who were sitting for the CPA at that point in time. So I went and interviewed, though, with the big eight accounting firms and, and those type of things. And I thought, well, all my classmates were getting offered second interviews and the jobs. And, and I only got one second interview out of all the big eight accounting firms. And that was with Pricewaterhouse. And finally, the interviewing partner pulled me off into a side room. And he said, Dan, it's 1981. You know, we're, I've talked to the partners. They are just not ready to hire a blind person right now. This is too big of a leap for us. You got to understand in our, in our office, we just hired our first woman two years ago. So, you know, it's kind of hard to think of that, you know, 40 years later now, but that's kind of the way it was before the ADA. Uh, you didn't really have a whole lot of, of civil rights in that area. And so it was, it was really kind of disappointing. So I'm, I went back um, home and, uh, you know, kind of graduated, stayed at home for a little bit, helped my grandmother who'd come down to see me graduate and slipped and fell and broke her hip. So I kind of nursed her back, you know, for the next three or four months where my parents had to go back to work. And my college roommate had been uh, in the pizza business, uh, his brother and his dad, and uh, Lou Nostro and his brother, Michael. And so um, Mike, I uh, got the idea of maybe we could, I could open up a pizza restaurant uh, with a friend of mine, Jerry. And so I went down every night uh, and worked at Pizza Villa for free for like three months and taught, got Mike to teach us, you know, teach us all about the pizza business, how to make pizzas, how to make subs, you know, recipes for the flour and, you know, the, the dough, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, Jerry and I kind of scrounged up our money and uh, six months later, we opened up uh, a pizza restaurant uh, in Okoy, Florida, a little suburb outside west of Orlando. And uh, we called it DG's. My name was, it started with a D. His name was Jerry with a G. We put eyes in it to make it look Italian because Jerry Lingelbach and Dan Spoon didn't sound real Italian. So we called it D-I-G-I -I, apostrophe <laughs> S, DG's Pizza. And we had, uh, you know, pizzas and subs and, and takeout. And, uh, and, and then a couple of years in, we got delivery. And it was, you know, it was entrepreneurship at its, its, at its finest. I was 25 years old. It was really exciting to kind of have your own business. And uh, I learned a ton, you know, absolute lear absolutely learned a ton about, you know, having employees, how to do uh, customer relationships, how to budget your money, you know, how to manage inventory, payroll, all those type of things, uh, food ordering. So it was a, it was a really good experience. Uh, so that's, that's what I did when I got out of college because I couldn't get anybody to give me a job. <laughs> that is some, you know, I, I'm hearing this, this very frequent theme of creativity here mm -hmm. and how you decided Okay, you heard no, there was nothing you could do about that no from that employer. And so you started a pizza business. And yeah. 
whether that was immediately related to your MBA or not, you still did it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. It was it was something to do, and so it was. Um, it, it really was. I still, you know, years later, look back at my uh, time at DG's Pizza very fondly. It's amazing. Still, people will see me in the community and say, "Ah, DG's Pizza, I remember it well." You know, so that was kind of that was kind of neat. And we, you know, after two years, we opened up a second store. And so I ran one and Jerry ran the other one. And then six or seven years uh, passed. Domino's came into town. Domino's undercut everybody back in the, in the late eighties, you know, they were selling two, two pizzas for $7 and free delivery and all this stuff. And so we were, we started to have a little erosion of our, of our profit margins. I was in my early 30s then. My vision was getting worse. It was getting harder to, you know, kind of do the basic, uh, you know, popping the bubbles on the pizzas and and, and doing some of those some of those activities. Uh, so I I actually did a, a major transition again, and our community college was was offering a program called High Tech Training for the Disabled. It was uh, put together by uh, a woman uh, with muscular dystrophy, uh, Beverly Chapman. She was just an amazing advocate in the Orlando area. And she had started this program and they let all people with all kinds of disabilities in, except for people that were visually impaired or blind. They didn't know how to handle that. You know, this was kind of before JAWS and all that and, and you know, screen readers and all that stuff really got going very well. It was just the first IBM PC 286 PC had come out and that was kind of what they used for the program. But they finally got where they were willing to, you know, let a a low vision uh, person into the program. So the division of blind services kind of contacted me. I had a job. I was gainfully employed with my pizza place. So they couldn't offer me any assistance to be in the program. But uh, my grandfather, who was always one of my biggest supporters, um, you know, uh, offered to loan me the $5,000 to take the program. So it cost $5,000 and you went, Brooke, if you can believe this, community college back in the, you know, in the late 80s, everybody's wearing, you know, tie-dye shirts and cut-off shorts and sandals. In order to go to the program, we had our own, we had our own little portable and we had to wear suits, Navy suits, ties, you know, totally dress clothes and go 40 hours a week from eight to five, Monday through Friday to this program for nine months. But what they promised at the end of the nine months is you would get a three month unpaid internship with one of the, you know, the 10 kind of large companies in the Orlando metropolitan area, either Disney or SeaWorld or AT&T or Westinghouse, Orlando Utilities, these kind of larger companies uh, that were located in the area. And so we went, I went through the program. It was all the way on the other side of town. So I had to take two buses in each day and oh God, that was a, that was a real mess. But, um, you know, at the end of the nine months, it was, um, they taught you mainframe programming for the computer, uh, what they called COBOL programming, and then along with job control language or JCL. So you be- could become a mainframe computer programmer because the IT industry was kind of booming in Central Florida and they were short, 
there was a need there. They were short of qualified programmers. And so they were doing anything to develop programming skills in the Orlando area, mainly a tourist area, but now uh, this, these industries really needed computer programmers. So went through that program for nine months and got an unpaid internship at Westinghouse when it was over and uh, still had my pizza place. So I would do, you know, uh, high tech training for the disabled all week. And then I'd work on my, in my pizza place, Thursday, Friday night, all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday, and then back at Valencia on Monday morning. So that was a really, really fun year. Um, but it, it, it allowed me an opportunity that I had not had. So at that point in time, I got offered the unpaid internship at Westinghouse and, you know, survived the three months and uh, they, you know, thought pretty highly of me. And so then they, they offered me an entry level position, which was the lowest they could pay anybody to get somebody into the, it was $2,100 a month was my, my first paycheck. I'll never forget that. And, and I, and I had to actually interview, this was a campus, Westinghouse had, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees around the country and around the world. But our, we were in the power generation business, uh, our particular business unit, and I had to go interview with the CFO, a gentleman by the name of Art Vedner. And I just thought, well, maybe this is what everybody has to do when they start at Westinghouse. And so um, I very quickly found out, like the first day I was eating lunch with two or three other people that had started the same day. And Mr. Vedner came by and said, hi, Dan, how are you doing today? And I said, oh, I'm doing great, Mr. Vedner. Good to see you. And they said, how do you know the CFO of Westinghouse? And I said, well, I had an interview with him, didn't you? And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We, he would, we wouldn't be allowed up to the fourth floor to see Mr. Vedner. So what I found out was they, they kind of hired me on probation for 90 days to see if I would work out. And so my hiring manager, Marie Williams, had to vouch, vouch for me. And, and uh, they kept a really close eye on me to see if I was going to be able to perform okay. So, you know, again, different time, but uh, kind of survived that uh, hurdle and, and got a job, really kind of a big change. So got a job at Westinghouse as a computer programmer. <laughs> so essentially you had a few experiences where you had this common thing that has happened to a lot of visually impaired people where you kind of feel like you're being you're auditioning <laughs> and no doubt, about it. no doubt about it yeah yeah and it's so it's plus and minus right one you probably many people have probably experienced this one the expectations were pretty low and so what was really nice, it was easy to beat people's expectations of what you were able to accomplish, right? So that was, that's kind of the, the positive spin on that. On the other side of that, I don't know if you or others feel that way, you almost feel like you have to overachieve to, to prove that you're quote unquote normal, right? You're, you're qualified to do the job, you measure up. Uh, and so it it was kind of interesting as I worked through corporate America to kind of see that tug of war between those two different kind of points of view. Uh, it really, you know, so it um, had a, if I, if I would say anything for people that are looking for employment, you know, I, later on in my career, I got to hire people, you know, lots of folks and interview folks and, and, 
you know, what you're really looking for are people who have good, obviously you got to check the box that if you don't have the basic skills for whatever you're applying for, you're not going to get the job. But beyond that, it's really trying to identify people that can really work very well in a team environment that have those good relationship skills and have the ability to learn because things change so fast that if you're not somebody who's willing to kind of be aggressive and get in there and learn the new thing, then you're going to get left behind no matter kind of what your experience level is when you start because it just things change so fast. So the, the yeah. ability to learn is very important, I think. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think your story has really shown that you can be adaptable, that being adaptable and being creative and being open to learning have been such big fundamental parts of your career. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you mentioned was that after you had this probationary program or job that turned into a non-probationary program yes. or job because you proved yourself yep. that at some point you began, began supervising people. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, and sure. Of events? <laughs> and, and I think, again, you know, it, it probably, um, you have to really, um, I think, prove to people your, your capability. So again, I started at Westinghouse and really did not get a promotion probably the first, uh, gosh, I don't know, five or six years I worked there. You know, I felt like I did a good job. I had a wonderful manager, Marie Williams, who, you know, who who kind of really met me through the high-tech training for the disabled program and brought me into Westinghouse. And so from that standpoint, she was a really huge supporter. On the other hand, she was very, quote unquote, protective of me. So she didn't want to put me in situations where she was afraid I might fail, right? And so what kind of happened there is once Marie kind of moved on and took another job and I had you know, after six years with the company, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about the business, right? So besides knowing how to do computer programs and that type of thing, what really makes you valuable inside a business is if you can learn the actual business itself, you know? And so we we serviced big uh, combustion turbine and steam turbine generators, you know? So we had, uh, you know, plants all over the United States and the world and we felt sent field service crews out and we shipped, you know, spare parts and uh, we did outages and we did major rewinds of generators and, and, you know, all this kind of type of, of really technical stuff. And I wasn't a technical, you know, I wasn't an engineer. I, I have a background in accounting and then the, the IT training, but you, you begin to learn the business. And then when I lost, uh, when Marie moved on and I got a new manager I kind of had a new opportunity to kind of take some risk. And if there's anything else, that's the other thing I learned at, at first Westinghouse. And then we, we became Siemens when, when Siemens uh, power generation bought Westinghouse power generation is kind of look at the business and be able to take risk, kind of put yourself uh, out there a little bit. As I grew in my career, I started telling people, when you're feeling uncomfortable, that's a good thing because you're growing and you're learning and you're developing. 
And so I got on some kind of some new innovative teams. We had a, a product called SAP that we were uh, uh, an enterprise resource uh, product, an ERP solution called uh, SAP, which was invented in Germany, but it was it integrated accounting and purchasing and inventory and and you know um, uh, really all the facets of business into one uh, to one system, and it kind of put together my combination of my accounting skills and my IT skills. And I actually volunteered to be on the pilot team that helped put in the first version of SAP for Westinghouse. And coming out of that, uh, I became kind of a, you know, an, an expert in that particular system. And, and then over time, uh, you know, went and took all kinds of, uh, they offered courses at Westinghouse where you could learn to move into, you know, team lead and management positions, you know, how you deal with people, how you handle different HR situations, those type of things. So I would sign up for that type of training. And, and over time, then I've got, you know, moved up to a team lead and then an entry level manager. And at the end of my career, I was a, you know, second level manager, with you know uh, multiple project managers underneath me and support managers, and it really was a, a, a wonderful career. And it was interesting because as I moved along with my career, of course, my vision continued to get worse and worse and worse to the point of really I had you know nothing but uh, you know light perception by the time my career ended there, uh, you know, five years ago. So it was. Um, it was a really good ride, and I think you you have to develop uh, really good relationships with people, really good networking skills, and I think everybody needs to believe that you're you know you're treating them with integrity and honesty, and kind of like the five core values inside of ACP if you, if you think about it. But but those really are a good way to run your career and. I think if, if people believe you are treating them fairly and, um, and, and working with them, I, I always felt we, weren't work, we were working for the company. So if the company succeeded, we succeeded. If a project succeeded, we succeeded. So it really was to look at it from a, from a team point of view. So. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you, the supervising managers, and how did they – how did they respond to you, the project managers, and your? How did they respond to your disability in general? Well, they actually did really good. I, um, you know, again, um, you know, I, I developed. It, it was always funny when, whenever we would start a new project and we would go out and meet with people in a new part of the organization. They would always look at me like, "What in the heck is that guy doing here? You know, who, mm-hmm. what's the who's the blind guy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, what's he doing here?" And they'd say, "Well, you know, he's the project manager." Oh no, what? You know, that can't mm-hmm. be. And so, my goal always was that, you know, when people saw me the first time, they were going to say, "What in the world is this spoon doing here?" And then, my goal was by the time I'd worked with these folks by for a month or so, month or two. I really wanted them to believe I was adding enough value to what we were doing that they'd be saying, well, we can't have that meeting until Dan's available. You know, Mm -hmm. you really wanted to work to, to, to show your value, you know, to show that you, you knew what you were talking about. 
uh, you, you really understood the business, you understood the, you know, project management, you knew, you knew what you were doing. And, uh, you know, and I had a good team that I worked with for a number of years. I remember a new engineering group moved in next to us and, uh, you know, I hopped up to go to the bathroom, you know, in the middle of the morning there, came down the, you know, the aisle in between the cubes, hit the wall, turned left, went to the bathroom. And uh, Marty Schreiner, a gentleman who had worked for me for a number of years, you know, he knew some of these new engineers that had come over and the, and the and one of the engineers came running over to Marty. Marty told me later and said, Marty, that guy's blind. Marty said, yeah, I know. <laughs> What's he doing here? And Marty said, well, he's my boss. I've worked for him for years. He's our project manager. And he said, oh, okay. He said, well, what, we sh- what should we do? And he said, I don't think you need to do anything. But when he's heading to the bathroom, if I was you, I would get out of his way. <laughs> so, but, but, but uh, you know, you just kind of, um, uh, you know, you have to kind of uh, – Make fun. You know, I never tried to, I always tried to put people at ease. I was the only person, I was the only visually impaired person in a campus of 4,000, right? And so, you know, you can't, uh, you're not going to get a lot of special things done for you. So you have to be able to adapt. I got, I got very good at listening and visualizing PowerPoint presentations. I don't know if you do that in your work, Brooke, but every meeting we had had a PowerPoint presentation, you know, on a wall and, you know, you were going through the points of the presentation and, and trying to, to follow along. I, I've told this story once or twice, but when I was, um, when we became part of Siemens, you know, then I started having, uh, you know, global, global project teams with, with folks from Germany and folks from America. And so, First time I was over on this particular project in Germany, uh, and I, I had another meeting, so I got to the project review meeting a little bit late, and they had saved the, the chair for me at the end of the table, and the Germans were kind of on one side and the Americans on the other side, and so custom in Germany, you go around and shake everybody's hand all the way around the table and, and welcome everybody, and so they stopped, and I went around and shook everybody's hand, sat down in the chair, and they continued on on the overview, and um, you know, I, I was following along and, you know, my job as the project manager was kind of, okay, well, item number three there, you know, help me understand a little bit better how we're going to get that done on time. You know, we're only 15% uh, complete and we're, you know, we, we burned 40% of our hours. How are we going to make that up? And so I was pointing at the, uh, the overhead, you know, pointing at the, I could see a little bit to just see the box of light on the wall. So I was pointing at the box of light on the wall. And I did this like two or three times. And finally, John Gates, one of my uh, folks that worked for me on the project, he, you know, and I'd known him for a long time. He actually was my mentor when I first started at Westinghouse years ago. So John yells, Dan, stop, stop now. And I'm like, John, you know, we're here. It's our first international meeting with these guys. What do you, you know, why are you yelling stop? And he said, you keep pointing at that window over there and everybody keeps looking outside. The PowerPoint is on the other wall. And I said, okay, <laughs> thanks, John. <laughs> he said, it's driving me nuts. Every time you point it outside, they all look outside like there's something out there. <laughs> I said, well, thanks, John. I appreciate it. So you can't take yourself too seriously. You know, everybody started laughing. You know, we went out and had a beer and talked about it. You know, so you just, you can't. You can't take yourself too seriously. 
I appreciate you ending with that. That's, <laughs> I think that's really good advice in addition to everything that you've shared with us. And what are you doing now? I, I know we didn't get a whole lot of time on that, but what is your life looking like right now? Well, I retired uh, five years ago and then, you know, kind of my last year or two of employment, you know, kind of always trying to think ahead to that next thing. So uh-huh. um, I w- we were kind of involved in several committees inside of ACB. So I, um, you know, actually ran for the board of directors uh, two years before I retired and you know, thought, well, as I retire, American Council of the Blind and the Florida Council of the Blind will give me uh, give me something, you know, productive to do with the next phase of my life. And, uh, you know, it has, uh, I never dreamed that I would become president of the American Council of Blind. I mean, there's so many people with, you know, 30, 40 years of experience inside the organization. You know, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a Braille user, which is something that's kind of, I thought, almost kind of mandatory to be president of ACB. Uh, I see the value in Braille. I just, you know, kind of being a person who had low vision most of my life, uh, I, you know, have not, I've not learned Braille. And, and so it was something I never thought it would be, again, taking kind of that risk out there. Some people encouraged me to run for first, first, the first vice president position when Jeff Tom decided not to run and then president. And, and it's been, it's been wonderful, you know, to be able to give back, uh, you know, provide service, meet so many wonderful people and just see the, the growth inside of ACB, the growth with our community events, taking that first, again, risk again, doing a virtual convention. When we, we decided to do that, everybody was like, are you nuts? And so we pulled it off. And now we're so proud, uh, as we should be, of what we were able to accomplish. So, um, you know, it's really give, given me, um, you know, kind of the, the, the maybe, hopefully not the last, but a very exciting chapter in my life. And, uh, and I'm not bored. And, uh, you know, this is, this is yet another full-time job. So this one just, you don't get paid for, but it's, uh, it, you get paid in other ways than money. You get paid in, in uh, spirit and how, uh, and sense of accomplishment and, and friends and colleagues. So it's, it's good stuff. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I know you're doing a great job with that role. And I appreciate you coming in and sharing everything that you have today. Well, and thank you. And thanks for the employment committee and thanks for doing these podcasts. It's uh, fantastic. So, so thank you all for your, for your time and service. Thanks so much. All right. We're going to switch over to my colleague, Peter Auchel, who's going to interview his guest. So go ahead and take it away, Peter. So thank you for joining us on Let's Get to Work. And our second guest for this podcast is Junior Lolly. Junior, say hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us. And tell us what, what, what you did most of your professional life. Okay. The short story is uh, uh, right after I graduated from school, I went to work with Eckerd Photo Lab for a year. Like to starve to death. Was totally broke all the time. So I left there, came home, stayed basically at, with my grandmother and then uh, around August, September of 1979, she went and got the mail, and we had a local paper. We call it the mullet wrapper. 
Uh, but anyway, they, she said that there is a position at the sheriff's office here in Liberty County for a dispatcher. And I said, ooh, that sounds interesting because radio is right up my line. And so basically my grandmother backed me in anything I wanted to do. So we went to the sheriff's office, filled out an app, and I got a call uh, and to come see the sheriff. And uh, so I, I basically had an interview with him. And uh, one of the first things out of his mouth, excuse me, but this is what he said. He was, he's retired army. He was a paratrooper, so he didn't care what he said. He said, what in the hell am I going to do with a blind man? I said, if you, Sheriff, you give me a try, you'll find out. So basically, I contacted Division of Blind Services, Tallahassee, and um, got a counselor. And she told me that they would pay my salary for one year and buy all equipment and uh, everything. So the sheriff agreed. So I uh, basically got down and, and learned uh, all of the stuff I needed to learn. And uh, I um, I don't know if anybody remembers it, but Telesensory Systems had a, a unit called the VersaBraille. Anyway, I went and for a week to train on it, learned how to use it. They hooked it up to the FCIC, NCIC system, which is Florida Crime Information Center, National Crime Information Center for running, uh, you know, license plates, driver's license, wanted checks, uh, criminal history. So anyway, it worked. So uh, anyway, that worked for a while. And then uh, back then it was pre-911. Let me, let me make that. So, so, so I'm going to stop you just because I want to go back a little bit. So you became essentially a 911 dispatcher, correct? People would call. Correct. Okay. So talk about what prompted you to be interested in that kind of work. You've mentioned you're interested in radio, for example. What, what prompted you to get interested okay. in that kind of work? I understand. Okay. Number one, I, I was, in, uh, when I went to Florida school for the blind, uh, there was a, um, a, lo a radio station on campus and I, I had this interest in radio. So I worked with that station for a while and okay, that started my radio. Cause I was talking to people and they were listening. I was playing music. They were listening. So anyway, um, there was always in my life an interest in, in, in radio. And uh, I, I don't know why, but it was there. And uh, this opportunity for 911 dispatcher, pre-911 dispatcher, was one of the things I had to go for. As Dan was saying, risk, risk. And that's all I did all my life was take risk. So talk about your probationary period. They said... Uh... Uh, you have a year to to make it. So, what did you learn during that year? Okay, Peter. What I learned is, I um, I had to learn uh, the the radio that was in front of me, which was very simple. Uh, and I was on CB radio for years, so I was not uh, mic mic shy. I learned that I had to learn uh, all the uh, all the uh, format for the two uh, for the two systems, the NCIC FCIC. I had to learn every format for that. And, and put it in memory, and uh, which was my memory, I had to learn how to take a call, whether it be a routine complaint, like as, you know, uh, uh, a disturbance call between man and wife or a boyfriend and girlfriend or whatever. I had to learn how to take that and get all the details I could. 
which I, I wrote everything down on bra in Braille, and I'll explain how we finish that later. And uh, then um, they showed me and told me how to take a 911 call or emergency call. And like I said, this was pre-911. Uh, so I learned all of that. And, uh, okay, now here, uh, huh? You had to learn addresses. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, basically, she said I had to learn addresses. Well, I did not have to learn addresses per se. Um, before before I went to work, I knew most of the county or all almost all of the county roads and where they were from being on the CB radio and assisting people that were bogged down, uh, you know, out in the woods needing uh, somebody to come jump them off or whatever. But I learned most of the county from that. So I pretty well knew where to go. And the ones I didn't, I asked. Uh, and I uh, had to learn uh, radio procedure and using uh, what we call signal code, signals and TINS codes. There's a difference. I uh, had to learn all of those. And there's a humongous amount of those things. I had to learn all of that. Plus, uh, Basically, uh, uh, where I was sitting, uh, I had to deal with the public coming in and want to see the sheriff or one of the secretaries or or the chief jailer uh, or something. And uh, so anyway, I had to deal with that. And sometimes that got to be a pain because some of the people that came in were obnoxious uh, and I mean bad. So anyway, um, so I had to deal with that. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, and one of the one of the most interesting calls, uh, Peter, that I had on my first year. Uh, see, Tyndall Air Force Base is about probably 75 or 80 miles southwest of me. And when I was so, this one so, time, uh, before you before you continue your story, where are you? I mean, in other words, where? where oh, okay. I'm in Bristol, Florida, which is in Liberty County. I am about halfway between Tallahassee, Florida, and Panama City, out in the, uh, well, as, as Diane says, nowhere. There, most of our county is pine trees and, uh, you know, just nothing. I mean, there, we have about 9,000, uh, a little over 9,000 people in the whole county. Thank you. So please continue your story. So you work for this Air Force Base. And please All right. Well, no, the, uh, I was working one day, and, and I got a call. Um, that there was a jet aircraft down in the National Forest, which was about maybe 25, 20, 25 miles from Bristol. And so I had to get a phone number for airport, uh, uh, Air Force operations in Panama City. So anyway, I finally found that with the help of Bay County Sheriff's Department, Panama City. I called them and I said, did you know one of your aircraft down in Liberty County? They said, no, we did not. And uh, so anyway, I already had units en route to that. And they told me, they told me, do not, do not let anybody even anywhere near that aircraft. And, but, oh, and the pilot had ejected. He had ejected, but the aircraft made a crash landing in the forest, uh, way out in the woods. They said, don't let anybody near that aircraft because it has live nukes on board live nukes and they asked me if anything had exploded i said no nope, not yet <laughs> and so anyway i informed my officers plus ems and uh fire department what was going down 
So anyway, they they formed the perimeter, and eventually Air Force uh, personnel got there, and they went in with uh, all these um, all these weird looking suits on. You know, would uh, kind of look somebody like somebody from outer space. Anyway, they went in and they were even surprised that those nukes ha- had not gone off because of the way the jet came in. But they were still intact under the wing. And so anyway, uh, they got all that taken care of. That was one of the funniest things in the in the first year and most interesting. But these, um, there's other stories. But go ahead, Peter, anything else? Yeah. So talk about the role with Volk Rehab. I know you, you talked about one Volk, Volk Rehab counselor who was very supportive. Were, uh, was the rest of Volk Rehab supportive of your choice to do this, uh, to do the work that you wanted to do? Yes, everybody was very supportive. Everybody was there. And because um, once I got this counselor on board, she convinced everybody else they came on board. And I got, got all the equipment. Uh, if I asked for it, I got it. And uh, right on time, at the first of every month, I received a check in the mail from uh, uh, from blind, Division of Blind Service for Rehab. And just like they said, and uh, at the... Uh, and mostly, I was still learning a lot, uh, Peter. I mean, most of the stuff was what I already mentioned, but it, just learning a lot more about it. And uh, at, back then, I was working. I was working six days a week from seven a.m. to p uh, seven p.m. Six days a week. Only had Sunday off. So eventually, um, on the right at the end, right at the end of the year, the uh, rehab counselor, she showed up at the door for a meeting with the sheriff. So they went in the office and uh, I don't have to tell you who was sweating it. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, um, uh, and I actually got to sweating it because it, it, they were in there a little bit too long for me. So eventually that door opened and uh, both of them, both of the, uh, the sheriff and the re- uh, rehab counselor walked up and the sheriff leaned on the counter that was uh, over to my left, which was almost next to me. He leaned over on the counter and uh, I said, okay, this year was good. Just to myself, you know, he stood there and he, ma- he, he waited as long as he could. He made me sweat, Peter. And uh, eventually he, uh, he says, boy, that's what he used to call me a lot of time. Boy, you're not going no down where you stand right here. I like your work. And uh, he said, welcome aboard. And I said, thank you, sir. And uh, anyway, uh, I got I got uh, a lot of times I got to the point, Peter, where the sheriff, uh, you know, had the he had the chief jailer come in and do what we call complaint cards. He would uh, come in and and uh, I would read him what I had done. He put it on a, compl- a complaint card at the de- date times. And the complaint number, we kept a, a series of numbers. So anyway, eventually the chief jailer came up to me and says, you know, you're doing such a good job. I'm going to leave you alone. Don't, uh, if you need me, call me. If you don't, leave me alone. And so I, I rarely ever had to call him back in there because I took it. But at the end, of, close to the end of the shift, he did come back in there where I was at and, and finished up all my paperwork for the day because um, I Back then, we did not have it set up for a typewriter to do uh, uh, the blogs and stuff. 
So anyway, he filled out my logs. He filled out that. So eventually, Peter, um, it got to the point where we did pre-911, okay? And they installed the uh, pre-911 stuff, which made separate lines for all 911 calls. So anyway, I could tell the difference, which was a admin line, because I had uh, three admin lines. I had actually had four 911 lines, one for each section of the county. So, uh, but I couldn't tell which section was ringing, but all four of them, all four of the 911 lines rang completely different from the admin. So I know it was a 911. So anyway, I, I got a whole lot more expense for 911. I dispatched. Uh, EMS, fire, and law enforcement. And also, uh, for traffic accidents, I had to dispatch, you know, uh, a deputy sheriff out there. And then I had to turn around and call Florida Highway Patrol and get a highway patrol unit out there. And I had to explain to them specifically where to go because that was pre-numeric 911 addresses. So uh, anyway, I got had that, and I got a, a very, very, very close relationship with Florida Highway Patrol. Uh, anyway, they when they heard my voice, they knew who I was. Um, so anyway, I learned all that, and then um, everything went smoothly from there. And then yeah. eventually one day, uh, I had, well, I wore uniforms, uh, you know, with a, with a badge, the nameplate, the collar brass, the whole nine yards, and the patches on the sleeve. So one day, uh, it was kind of a law, and the sheriff came through. He said, turn around. And uh, I said, uh, what? He said, just turn around. So um, I turned around, and I felt him mess with my collar, uh, you know. And eventually, he uh, he got everything the way he wanted it. And he said, feel up on your collar. And I did. And it was the Sergeant Chevrons. Do you know what I'm talking about, Peter? I do. Okay. They were they were silver sergeant. He said, you're now a sergeant. And he so, said. So, so how, he, I'm sorry. Huh? Uh, keep going. No, go ahead. So uh, so you, you successfully made your year probation. How long did you end up working for, for uh, in your role? Okay. I, I did. I did thirty-five years. And what did you? So you obviously became a sergeant during that period of time. What did you learn during those thirty-five years? You talked about it a little bit, but you know you were there for a good long while. Uh, what did you learn? How did things change? What did you learn? Okay, uh, well, all that good stuff. Okay, now there was there was a lot of things changing, and you you had to adapt. And uh, you know a lot of the. Um, a lot of the laws were changing. A lot of the uh, dispatch was changing because of new rules and regulations coming in. I had to learn a lot of that. I had to, uh, uh, and we, uh, basically, I um, become the communication supervisor as well as a sergeant. I was the ones that, well, my boss came to me and said, you need to do this and this and this. Uh, and uh, I had to, I had to go down to the, you know, the crew, my dispatchers under me and, uh, and train them on what we needed to do. And if we needed uh, to renew training on the FCIC, NCIC system, 
uh, I, I delegated that to somebody else and said, you make sure that we get the training we need uh, and so forth. That was what happened. Um, I'm trying, oh, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the people that were working for me or with me, uh, they would find better jobs. So I had to readapt to brand new people, train them. And some of them were easy. Some were not. Some weren't just cut out for it. Um, so, I, I, I mean, uh, being a supervisor completely changed things. I was not only dispatching, but I was having to make sure that the other dispatchers were doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing when they were supposed to do it. And then when I got off duty, because after I made sergeant, I got strict day shift, eight to four Monday through Friday. And, uh, and, and at night and on the weekends, um, I had to answer many, many supervisory questions, uh, you know, about a, a situation that nobody uh, had done before, but me. Uh, so I had a, uh, I had a handheld radio with me. If I wasn't home, they could call me on the radio or the phone, uh, and supervisory, you know, at first, at first supervisory, it seems like, Oh my God, can I handle this? But I eventually did. And Peter, so, uh, a few years later, I don't know exactly how long, here comes the sheriff again. He takes the uh, sergeant chevrons off the collar and says, wait a minute. And I uh, feel him messing around with the, with my, uh, we had a strap that goes across the top of the uh, shoulder. I felt him messing with them. So I, uh, I said, what are you doing, sheriff? We had a good report by then. And he said, wait a minute. So anyway, I, he quit messing with my shoulder strap. He said, look at your shoulder strap. Well, he gave, he just gave me even more power. He put me as a Lieutenant. Uh, uh, what a moment for you, right. To be, to be Lieutenant Lolly. Yes. yes. Instead of Sergeant Lolly. So uh, technology must have changed during that period of time. Did you move on beyond the telesensory versa Braille? Uh, oh yes. Uh, okay. I'm glad you asked that. Cause I wanted to mention that. Uh, what happened is, um, Eventually, the advanced 911 system came in, Peter. Uh, we had a uh, company that came in and put all the um, servers in, uh, the new uh, screens, the whole nine yards. And uh, so anyway, the guy that was the guy that was in charge of all this, he would, he became a really good friend of mine, and uh, we got to discussing it one day while they were doing the install. And I said, Bob, how are we going to work this where uh, I can read what's on the screen? He said, you tell me. I said, Bob, I know of a um, screen. I know of a screen reader called Jaws. And it's made by tele, uh, uh, it's made by uh, Freedom Scientific. So anyway, he said, "Let me call them." So he 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 looked up the number. He called them, and he uh, he asked him how much the price was. It was Jaws thirteen at that time, by the way. So he asked him what the price was, and I said, "Bob, we don't have the budget for that." He said, "Forget it." 
He said, this is on, um, this is on AK Associates. So right then and there, he quipped the, country, uh, the company credit card out and gave them the uh, number they needed, the information. And the company actually bought Jaws 13. When it came in, uh, Bob came in with another guy. They, uh, they installed uh, Jaws on the server system. And uh, because they had to do it with, uh, you know, passwords and stuff, they had to do it. So we got we got Jaws up and working. They had to do some labeling of, you know, like like phone lines, what number was on which line or whatever. And they also labeled the nine one one lines, which uh, which section was which section. And uh, we had the uh, like the admin lines; they were labeled. And uh, anyway, um, we got all that done, and uh, we, te- we we did a test for about a week, and we finally got Jaws and uh, the 911 system working together uh, like real smooth. So whenever a phone rang, it uh, uh, the uh, there was a little box popped up on the uh, 911 screen that would uh, tell me, uh, okay. Uh, this is a 911 call at so-and-so address and, and so-and-so part of the county. Uh, it gave me all the information like color of house, where it had a fence, a dog, or whatever. And it gave me the person's name that owned the place. So that, you know, okay, that was uh, one of the biggest things that helped me a lot. And, uh, and we also changed out uh, the 911 uh, tone. Uh, it was... We we changed it to something that was that I liked, and uh, pretty well everybody else liked it. So when that thing popped off, we knew that right then that was a nine one one, and and I had usually had somebody in the nine one one office with me because we usually worked in teams because there was two nine one one stations, one on my side and one on their side, with exactly the same stuff. So anyway, that's how that worked out. So, so uh, we only have a minute left. So I have one more question for you. And I know you could tell stories, uh, wonderful stories for a lot longer. But in the last minute, can you tell us what advice you might give to someone who's uh, currently either employed or looking for their first job? Okay. Well, uh, my biggest thing is Dan's already said it. Take that risk. You never know what you're going to gain. You may lose, but you never know how much you're going to gain. And I, I took that risk and I gained a lot. I gained 35 years. I'm on retired now. And I have had people come to me from EMS, fire, whatever, um, Peter, and uh, ask, me, ask me would I come back. Well, thank you so much, Junior. Uh, your story is fascinating. I, you know, I, I don't, that's a job that requires a lot of uh, uh, being able to handle pressure extremely well. Uh, and you obviously did a really good job as a 911 operator. And thank you for joining us on, on this Let's Get to Work podcast. You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee at the American Council of the Blind. Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Jostet, the committee chair, at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at Comcast.net. Until next time, work it.